0: You're listening to EU Watchdog Radio.
1: Welcome to this third episode of this podcast series called EU Watchdog Radio. It's hosted by two Brussels-based NGOs called Corporate Europe Observatory and Counterbalance. Both NGOs try to raise awareness on the importance of good governance in the European Union by researching issues like lobbying of large and powerful industries, corporate capture of decision-making, corruption, fraud, human rights violations, in areas like agribusiness and chemical companies, the financial sector and public investment banks, trade, energy and climate, and much, much more. I'm Hans van Scharen, media officer at CEO. And in this episode, I meet with a very interesting English researcher called Nicholas Hilliard from Kona House. We meet in a tiny theater, La Courte Chelle in Liege, in the south of Belgium. Why we meet here will become clear shortly. Nick has just published a report under the umbrella of Counterbalance with the title, Corridors as Factories, Supply Chains, Logistics and Labour. Is this the world you want? It's a fascinating and scary read about globalization. It's about the link between Alibaba and the hidden ghost workers of globalization and the fact that basically we are all being logisticized. This is a story about you and me. The interview with Nicholas Hilliard took place early March, just before most of us started realizing the magnitude of the corona crisis, and well before governments started taking unprecedented measures to stop the virus from spreading even more. At the end of this podcast, you'll hear Nick's views on how all this will affect the world of logistics and globalization. But first, I asked him what his organization Corner House is about.
0: Well, the is a very small group, a solidarity and mutual learning group. Uh, there are three of us. And we work on, with movements and on issues around social justice and environmental justice. I've been working on these issues for 40 years now, um, often in solidarity with, with uh, communities that are affected by large-scale infrastructure, dams, or pipelines, these infrastructure corridors and so on. Right.
1: And so that's the link also with, with counterbalance, because counterbalance is a network of... And we're part of
0: that network. Yeah,
1: and, and counterbalance is uh, predominantly uh, looking at uh, investment
0: banks who often are predominantly investing in infrastructure. And a lot of my work over the last 40 years has been on following the money. Who's, who's investing in these, these infrastructure projects? Who's making money out of them? Right.
1: Now, I would like to start with a quote from, from the new report. Um, it goes like this. More and more of us, north and south, are now logisticized, relying for our everyday provisioning on networks of political and economic power, whose purpose is not mutual survival, but profit. And the more entangled entangled we become in these networks, the more our every move is fed into a system of unequal, unjust, and destructive wealth production. Now, I really wasn't aware that I was being
0: logisticized, So I've learned... Well, you are. I am. Can, <laughs> can you explain why am I logisticised? Well, um, more and more of us, I mean, if you go to a supermarket, for example, and you get your food from a supermarket, if, you put, if your food, your, your, the wherewithal that you live, live by comes from systems of production, systems of, of transport, that rely on logistics. And it's not just logistics to make certain that certain goods are in the right place at the right time. Logistics is a, an industry which has grown over the last 30 years. If you look in the English Dictionary from 1985, for example, which I did the other day, the word logistics does not exist in it. That's it's, a new, it's a new industry. Right. It's an industry that's now probably the world's largest employer. Uh, value that four trillion or more uh, dollars, dollars, dollars. So it's an enormous industry. And it basically what ensures that goods arrive in the supermarket. But it does much, much more than that. And one of the reasons that it does that, much more than that, is because of uh, the way that production has changed over the last... um, Forty years, and perhaps we can explore that in a yes, bit more Yes, we
1: even. will. We will deconstruct because you gave a lecture today. Uh, that's why we, we find ourselves in this uh, nice little theater in in Liège, in the south of Belgium, um, because there's a there's a local activism against Alibaba. Uh, for those who don't know, Alibaba is basically the Chinese Amazon. That probably will do the trick to explain what we're, what beast we are talking about. Um, and they invited you to 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 ha- basically have a lecture about about your report, um, and um, so um, you start you started by saying, well, um, Alibaba promised nine hundred jobs in Liege, uh, which has a very high unemployment rate. So if I would be unemployed, I would be happy.
0: Yeah, I mean Liege's unemployment rate, I think, is something around ten percent, and I think it's. Uh... 65 percent lot of long term unemployed, so it's a very high area of high unemployment, long term unemployment. And if I was offered a job in a the logistics center and I was unemployed, I'd, I'd I'd probably jump at it. But I, what I wanted to try and do with the those who are meeting here today and who are concerned about this this mm-hmm. logistics center, is to think a little bit more. What is the world that logistics centres are intended to create? And is it a world that we want? And who's the we in this? Right. And if we don't want it, how do we uh, join together with others to, to, to oppose it and to create something different? So one of the things I was trying to do was to look beyond the job. Right. What does a logistics centre actually mean? Why do you get logistic centres?
1: Well, to start with you showed a map uh, of the logistic centres around the world and basically you said the world has measles because they have uh, logistic centres all over And they are huge and they are growing. And you said, for example, that the one in Shanghai um, is is 100 times the size of
0: Brussels, just to give an indication. That's right. It's huge. Uh, The support and and logistics center. I mean, there's a a consultancy firm called CBRE that's produced a report recently on logistics centers. And there is this map in it. And if you look at it, I mean, there are dots all over the world. Yes, and and, and and often they are
1: in, in, in free zones, uh, zones of ex- exception where they are exempt of paying taxes and where uh, labor laws are not valid, it's sort of uh, uh, black
0: holes of, uh, of... Zones of exception, which is a um, a phrase of American academic. Um, <clears throat> and I think that's right. I mean, one of the main characteristics of these logistics centers is that they are in zones which have been exempted either, either from custom duties, so uh, free ports, or from labour laws, from environmental permitting laws, uh, from tax laws, and so on. Yeah. Uh, that's one of their main features. And I think one of, one of the points I was making is that if you had looked at a map of um, 50 years ago, you just wouldn't have had those logistics centres all over the world. Yes. And the question is why? What's changed?
1: Yes, and you illustrated it by showing this uh, um, old photograph of the Ford uh, car uh, manufacturing uh, place uh, plant in uh, Rivier, River Rouge in Michigan. And, and you explained that basically all the production for these cars were uh, at the same place, centralized. And, um, and this but is. Well, I think it was more. S- I
0: mean, I think what. I mean, you, the River Rouge plant is, is fascinating because. And the picture illustrated it. I mean, this was a single industrial site for manufacturing cars. But it had its own steel mill. So all the steel was manufactured at this point, the same point that the cars were manufactured. It had its own rubber and glass and uh, cement plants. It had its own uh, tool shops its own dye shops and so on and so forth. So everything that you needed to make a car, from the, from the raw materials, once the raw materials came, to the actual finished product, were all on the same site. And that was typical of most manufacturing sites around the world at that time.
1: Right. And of course we all know that that is no longer the case. Uh, these kind of productions have been fragmented. Um, and and you showed also maps of, of this during your your lecture, um, and you uh, gave the example of the the, the most loved item of uh, consumer countries, the computer, or one of the most loved uh, items I would That's say. Right. That's right. And uh, it's four thousand components being coming from all over the world for your nice fancy laptop. Um, so um, I mean, we know all that. What is the link with logistical networks, and and what
0: what? Well, now we're getting to the nitty-gritty and the nub of it. Yes. Uh, because why has production been fragmented? I mean, you've take, we've talked about the um, River Rouge plant. If you take a car, Ford car today, it's manufactured in several different com- countries, parts of manufacturing, one country, in another country, in another country, and then it's all assembled actually in Europe, in Valencia. But it, it travels all over Europe the par- yeah. before it's manufactured. Why? One of the main reasons for fragmenting production was to break unions. That was one of the main reasons for offshoring production uh, in order to be able to break unions. But the problem the problem for capital is that fragmenting production also creates other difficulties. You may have broken the unions, but you suddenly got supply chains. That are spanning the entire globe.
1: This is this is this is quite a, an expensive thing uh, uh, to 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 start. Um, um, yeah, having these 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 networks and having thousands of components coming from all over
0: the world. Like, it's a very it's a complex. Um, you've got a you've got a, a complex process in which you've got to coordinate all the parts. But the main the main problem for capital is this that. The distances between the points where raw materials for manufacturing are extracted, the points where they're produced, the points where uh, consumers actually buy the product, mm-hmm. involve multiple journeys and multiple forms of transport and huge distances. And distance really matters because time matters. Right. Why does time matter? Because you don't make a profit. You don't actually get your money until the consumer has bought the good. Right. So uh, the faster the commodities can be produced and exchanged, the greater the profits for individual firms. And this is, a, this is a very old problem. It's a problem that um, Karl Marx identified 150 years ago. And he, he expressed it in terms of the the more that fragmented um, capital became, the more it expanded, the more it needed to, in, to improve infrastructure. And he put it in terms of, uh, in order to annihilate space by time. And the interesting thing is, you know, I mean, that if you look at the um, a recent World Bank report on on um, <coughs> uh, infrastructure and on on production, uh, I mean. It doesn't mention Karl Marx, I mean you wouldn't expect the World Bank to mention Karl Marx, but it is all about time and distance and how to truncate it. And the solution that's come up and which the World Bank and others are pushing uh, through their finance is infrastructure corridors. Right.
1: And yeah, and, and, and basically, the, the, the one of the central messages of of your new report is that um, these logistical networks are being um, uh, expanding. You call them corridors. Maybe you should explain the word corridor. But basically, you say and that is an interesting metaphor. You say they are the factories of this just in time economy, and where basically.
0: The- That's right. I mean, I, I mean, these cor- We've had corridors for a long time. I mean, in Europe. You've had the trans-European network since the early 90s. Yes, it was a uh, 10T. It was an industry program. Uh, uh, Fiat and various others actually designed the program, and the European Commission basically picked it up. Hundreds of
1: billions of euros have been spent in that industry. On that. And there are
0: corridors, networks of roads, railways, canals, etc. Harbors, ports. All all the way around Europe, connecting all of Europe. Mm -hmm. What we're talking about today is that on a scale that is global and there isn't a single inhabited continent that's not affected in one way or another the only place that's not going to have corridors is antarctica right the, the arctic they've got plans for corridors as the polar ice recedes in order to be able to open it up for oil and gas yes. and minerals and so on and so forth so these corridors are being built everywhere and it's road rail um, etc. with logistic h- hubs all the way along them. Right.
1: But you, it's... it's you showed, sorry to interrupt you. You showed also several maps of different continents and you were quite specific of the number of new uh, corridors and, 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 and logistical hubs that were being planned and, and in Asia, in Africa, Latin America, all over the world and um, uh, even up north. Um, but. Who is behind this? Is, is the, who is, which are the, the, the economical and political factors that are pushing for this?
0: Well, uh, the major de- international development banks, World Bank and Asia Development Bank, and so on, they're all pushing it. You've got China pushing it big time through its Belt and Road Initiative, right. which is a land corridor system at, which is pretty much global, and, uh, and, but it also includes maritime corridors. So you've got a lot of very powerful um, political um, forces pushing it. And, of course, capital through companies and so on are also pushing it. Mm. So a, uh, th- those are the people behind it. I, I mean, I think it's important to think to really stress that these corridors aren't just about transport. They're not just about getting your lorries to go faster and so on and so forth, you know, to be able to travel faster. Right. They're also about... Totally re-engineering economic geography.
1: Well, that you should explain.
0: Well, I mean, and this is, you know, this is part of the, the uh, you can read about it in World Bank reports and in other uh, reports of other agencies. But if you take one corridor that we've looked into at of it's the Caret Corridor. Yes, I would. Which is in just, central, just, central Asia. Yeah, it's a I fascinating mean, story. What, what's planned is that along the corridor you will have zones. And these zones will be mining zones, agribusiness zones, industrial zones. Uh, in Astana, they've even got a, they've got a financial zone. where interestingly, the, the law that applies in that financial zone won't be um, local law. It will be English law. You know, so these are really changing how things are done. And along these, these corridors, the plan is, and it's their word, to agglomerate uh, people. So it so means mean, they're, they're planning to to that 70% of the of Kazakhstan's population will be moved into three black, planned um, mega cities. Wow. so what you what what these corridors are about are about clustering production along the corridor and creating a pool of cheap labor in order to be able to do that production.
1: This is what you call during your lecture, um, free trade Stalinism. Yeah, I mean this is
0: central planning on a scale that you know no one's thought about. I mean it's mass, mass movement of people, mass um, uh, 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 concentration of production. This is you know central planning, and and bear in mind that it's financed by a a relatively few um, public banks, plus bringing in private capital through infrastructure funds and so on and so forth, where you're getting fund managers, just a, a handful of fund managers in, in terms of global population, deciding what gets built and when it gets built and who, and who, who, who will build it. So this is, I mean, really centralised planning. I mean, so I, I call it sort of uh, free market Stalinism, for want of a better word. You said that these um, um, new hubs or corridors, they are not
1: just about unloading stuff in trucks, etc. The old idea that people might have about this um, um, logistics. You, for example, talked about the technological aspects uh, of, of, of this. Could you, could you elaborate on that? Well, I think,
0: just to, just to continue a bit more, I mean, you've got these corridors where they're agglomerating cheap labor, speeding up um, transport, and connecting supply chain nodes. And the corridor becomes the factory, Right. that's the key. That the production is right the way down the supply chain. It's no longer concentrated in one or two places, it's right the way down the supply chain. And that brings us to logistics, because logistics is about managing that corridor as a factory. It's about squeezing labour at every point along the
1: route. And as you have said, it needs to go... It's, it's all about speed and efficiency, right? Those yes, are
0: the, yes. The and, and, it's, and, and the logistics industry is bringing in a, a variety of new tools um, to logisticise all of this, these processes. So you have, you know, obviously barcodes. We're all familiar with barcodes. Um Uh, And these barcodes are constantly collecting information from us as consumers, and feeding it back into this this corridor as a factory, um, so that the the the, so to to ensure that you know a consignment of of parts for some car is delivered at exactly the right time because there's a a new demand for it somewhere else, etc. etc. It's coordinating everything. and because you and I as consumers are actually supplying a lot of this information, we ourselves are becoming part of the factory. we are becoming producers in that factory because what are we producing we're producing data exactly and what is the biggest traded commodity or one of the biggest traded commodities today is data mm-hmm. so the factory isn't isn't just those producing parts for a car the factory isn't just those who are Um, uh, transporting those parts it's not those who are just putting those parts onto into containers and onto onto ships uh, a port. the factory includes you and i but we're giving our labor for free right
1: and then to come back to the actual workers because you you described that even um, and that's a fascinating page in the report where you write about ghost workers. And you refer to a book that was just published called Ghost Worker, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. It's a and really th- fascinating book. Yeah. And so basically, could you explain? Because it's it's about it's about uh, the people behind the logarithms, uh, the people who work in these well, uh, Alibaba's, Amazon's of this world.
0: Well, these these um. Uh, logistics companies are relying more and more on technologies like blockchain, for example.
1: Can you explain block- blockchain? Because well,
0: blockchain sure. is, a, is a ledger, uh, um, but it's a distributed ledger. So, I, I mean, say you want to, to verify, you've you're got a supply chain and you want to verify that uh, this consignment of goods has gone through that customs post or reached that particular um, distribution centre or whatever you can rely on um, someone telling you that that's the case Mm -hmm. and that would be the traditional way but with a blockchain everyone in the blockchain signs off to the verification so it's a distributed ledger and it's therefore supposedly much less open to fraud because obviously one if you only got one person you could it's one person signing off they can falsify the record it's supposed to be a, a way of, of diminishing fraud, fraud, but it's actually about much more than that. It's about an attempt to automate trust, to mechanize trust, with, and that has profound social consequences. Now, is it possible to do away with all those social relations that actually make for trust? I don't believe it is. But and I think but there is a risk
1: that you say that the that the, the cement of societies, which is basically human relations and trust, um,
0: that, it bec- that could be it affected by using these new of technologies? Of course, it, 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 it does become affected, But I don't I think it will ever uh, replace or erode them. I think the technologies will do other things, like enable you to control labour much more as right. a result of these processes. But to go back to the ghost workers, because... You know, these, the, this logisticized system relies a lot on algorithms. It li- relies a lot on huge servers exchanging uh, digital information the entire time. On You know, um, barcodes on, on packages being read by, by 5G um, uh, networked uh, digital um, monitors and so on but i think the 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 point uh, there's often argued that all that automation will dis, will will erode lay er, erode employment yes. you know, that uh, that it will have a lead to a jobless world and workers so. displaced,
1: uh, replaced by robots that's, that's right like i mean i think i think
0: there's a real danger in that line of thinking because if you look historically at that whole process of automation what actually more often than not happens is Yes, it displaces labour in one place, but it reproduces or creates new forms of labour that are degraded forms of labour, where people are employed at lower wages elsewhere. So dock workers who are displaced by containerization have often now find employment in logistics centres or distribution centres behind the docks. Yeah. And behind all these algorithms, there are hundreds... Of, I mean millions of, of of ghost workers. That's that's the theme. In of, the U.S., you 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 named 25 Twenty five million. Twenty five million. So I mean, to give yeah. an absurd example, an algorithm may be able to uh, when you do a Google search for Elvis Presley, you know, loads of pictures come up, but the algorithm can't necessarily tell tell the difference between whether this particular picture of of uh, Elvis Presley is Elvis Presley or it's a. a a mimic, a, a huh? mean, what do you, uh, um, someone, someone who's, who's um, pretending to be um, right. uh, Elvis Presley. So you've got loads of of ghost workers verifying the algorithms, right. and that's that's uh, you can see how um, labor is displaced. It's displaced into, a, um, and these are workers who are employed in a just-in-time basis. They're um, contingent workers, very precarious labor. And so on. So they're, and they're pay paid very little.
1: They're paid very little because they are, for example, only paid for the for the, for the actual minutes that they do yeah, So No, well, sure yeah, it's bio- part bio- work. It's 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 piece work. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, you know. It's bio via biometric monitor- monitoring yes. devices, as you, yes. as you explained during your lecture. Yeah. Um, and and this is a bit all-willing, you know. It's 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 a scary uh, it's a scary uh, world to work in and to live in. I mean.
0: I think. I mean. I, be I think. It, to be honest, if well, I mean. I think it's a, a very. It's a, It's. It's a very precarious world. Um, it's a world in which it's very difficult for people to join together uh, through unions, for example, and um, press for for proper wages and for proper conditions. Um, and it's a, a world which is very much more easily controlled by capital right and, and I think I mean I, I mean just to to um, come back to this, this this theme of labor which is you know very much central to the report the report's about corridors it's about corridors of factory yeah. and it's about labor and how labor is being impacted by all this um, because I mean this is I think uh, <clears throat> the really central theme of the report is that the corridor as factory is built on busting unions, making it much more difficult to unionise. It's based on just-in-time work, where you're just paid for the short periods that you, you lash a container or unload a truck. It's about constant intrusive monitoring. You know, the use of digital technologies to, yeah. to, to monitor exactly where you are, who you're talking to. Um, How many seconds and milliseconds? Milliseconds, and then docking you for time that you weren't on the job, and it's about automation as a means of degrading labor, and that is the essence of the corridors of factories. There's always been monitoring of labor. I mean, that is, I mean, the the essence of of capitalist production. I mean, you know, it's, it's trying to get as much out of labor as as possible, and but there's a huge difference between having a putting clocking yourself in in the morning and having a, a, a day where you're relatively free, free to go to the you know you can go to the toilet when you need to go to the toilet where you can chat to your mates a bit and so on and so forth right and having digital technology that you're you have to wear that shows exactly where you are in the factory exactly at any one point Right.
1: And, and, and so to, to, to stick just a little bit more on this, in, in, the, in the preface of the report, uh, basically, um, the word extreme is used four times. Um, one time it's called in the, in the context of extreme infrastructure, um, one time um, uh, uh, extreme because um, it enables extraction that is even more destructive than, than it used to be, it's extreme because it's um, premised on even more uh, exploitative uh, production. So we talked about that already. And it's an extreme because it can operate only through an ex- extreme politics. Now, I was, I was interested in that last uh, example of extreme. Right, it comes
0: back to what we were talking about earlier, the, the Stalinist um, neoliberalism. I mean, it is an extreme politics where decisions that affect many millions of people's lives are being taken by a few fund managers here, a few fund managers there, a few executives in the World bank, and so on and so forth um, so, yeah. so I mean and it yeah. relies on that it's right. a command and control system right. and I th- there's a, a a point i'd really like to stress that uh, you know the, there may be those who react and say, okay, well, look, I mean okay, it's bad, uh, but I mean I'm sure we can have better labour laws, we can have um, better negotiations, we can try and uh, uh, protect workers. And, and of course, all of that is absolutely necessary as a, as a direction of, of um, political organising. But I think that one point that I would stress is that cheap labour is not an unintended consequence of logistics it's not an unintended consequence of these corridors cheap labor is absolutely built into every aspect of the corridor as factory and it always will be it's a necessity for it's a necessity i mean look if it's cheaper to ship to cod you know the fish um that you catch off scotland and you ship it to China to be filleted, and then you, once it's filleted, you chip, ship it back to Scotland to be sold. The reason why that is ch- cheaper, the reason why it's cheaper to make a 20,000 mile round trip is because labor is much, much cheaper in China. Yes. Cheap labor is the foundation, the bedrock of the system. It's the foundation, the bedrock of fragmented um, supply chains. Yeah,
1: right. Now, I we unfortunately, because um, uh, time is going too quick, as usual, um, because this is fascinating stuff that basically not many people discuss or debate or talk about. Uh, funny enough, I would say. But uh, my last question would be about how can we sort of, I mean, is this the world we want? Is the fundamental question that you also ask um, on the cover of the report. But um, I would like to introduce this last question by putting in front of you this popular logic in the political world, which says the mantra, trade is good. Trade is even uh, lies at the basis of human civilization. This is really the, 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 the sort of words that you hear in political debates. So how can one be uh, against trade? And, and those who are, there are some political actors that do speak out, Against free trade agreements, for example, which is a hot topic in, in the European uh, bubble. But um, they are often being politically marginalized or, or even uh, ridiculized because you will basically. Well, it's absurd. Opposed... It's
0: an absurd argument. I mean, of course, trade will always happen. Trade has always happened. But it's trade for whom? On what terms? Who benefits from it? And just to say, oh, well, all trade is the same is is to treat the public as if they're complete idiots. Yeah. They know perfectly well that all trade isn't the same. They know perfectly well that, you know, offshoring uh, in order to get cheap labor is not the same as, as uh, production systems that are for the collective good.
1: Right, and there lies the answer, one of the main answers to
0: what should we as citizens, what can we do to, to counter these, these developments? Well, are... I, I think, I mean, there's a debate to be had uh, you know, I mean, I personally don't think that this is the world we want. But that argument has to be won. It's uh, an argument that that needs to be won both by joining between joining up various struggles that are fragmented at the moment, and building a new we, a we that sort of wants to build a different world and thinking about how we can go about that. I would say that. Uh, it's fundamental that that is built on a... or has a, um, a class basis and a class analysis that goes with it. Why, and, uh, why do you emphasise this class? Because <clears throat> I don't think we're all in it together. Mm. You know, there's a difference between those who benefit from just-in-time delivery and those who don't. And we need to be clear about that. And we need to understand what the relationship between um, our, each of us and um, uh, capital is, and we need to explore it and try and unpick it and build build alliances that will move us towards, in my view, a world where it is a collective good that is prioritized, not just the interests of, of, of the few. Right, so basically uh, from a... And our collective survival. I mean, we're talking, I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, clearly and importantly, a lot of talk today about the climate crisis. I mean, this is a a talk that's been going on all my life as an activist, which is 40 years, but it's come up again as a big, for for very good reasons. It's more and more urgent. But the, the, the issue that's going to be the dividing line as to how we go forward is... Those who believe in the, our collective survival and those who believe in the survival of just a few. And that is, that is a class issue.
1: Nicholas Hilliard, thank you so much for this, uh, for this interview, this talk. Fascinating. And I invite everyone to read the report, which you can find at the website of Counterbalance. Have a safe trip home. Thank you. The interview with Nick took place early March, just before most of us started realizing the magnitude of the corona crisis. So after Nick traveled back to the UK, I asked him this question via email. How does he think that the growing appearance of these kind of viruses and pandemics will influence the trend of even longer supply chains and offshoring production? Will, in other words, corona affect capitalism as we know it? Here is Nick's answer. Yes, I do think the pandemic is a potential watershed moment. There is already talk of reducing the geographical spread of supply chains and bring production back home. But I would caution against thinking that this will be the end of logistics. The technologies, processes and practices that have been developed to squeeze labor will not suddenly vanish. There will be attempts to adapt them to whatever new form supply chains take. So the trajectory is not fixed. What happens next will depend critically on how social movements organize to oppose oppressive labor and environmental practices. COVID-19 is an additional reason for asking, is this really the world we want? But the question does not begin and end with COVID-19. It is a question that hangs over all discussions on the problems we face in society and it is one that needs to be uppermost in any strategy for responding to what comes next." Nick and I agreed that probably so far the only positive collateral damage of COVID-19 is that more and more people are becoming aware that there are downsides to globalization as well, and that the amazing speed by which the virus has been spreading over the globe Thus, show not only how fast human activities are going on 24-7, year in, year out, but also how interconnected we have all become. Another beneficial outcome may be if there is a greater awareness of how far we depend on collective institutions, such as public health care services, and the everyday acts of people caring for each other. This was EU Watchdog Radio. Thank you for listening.